Well, amen. Thank you so much, Brother Leo. I'm so glad you and the choir are here. What a joy it is to be at Southwestern Seminary, my home. I appreciate you so much. So many of my colleagues and friends are in Atlanta at the ETS conference, and so um, I'm so glad that you have remained behind with me and uh, have chosen to be here today for the glory of God. I'm going to be reading from the book of Revelation today. That will be our text, Revelation, find chapter 12, find Revelation chapter 12. And again, as you turn there, let me just say what a joy it is to be with you. I'm so excited. I think this is my fourth time to preach at Southwestern. And uh, Dr. Patterson has not been here for one sermon. And so I don't know what to make of that. I, I, I want to say that he trusts me with the pulpit. And so I, I want to believe that. But nevertheless, uh, it is always a joy. Dr. Patterson contacted me and asked me if I would preach today. today and I said, well, let me pray about it. Yes. And so... Uh, I always love coming here and I'm preaching to you. You're such a great uh, crowd to preach to, and I know you love the Lord, and it makes it so easy to preach. Revelation chapter 12. I want to pray today. I, I believe I have a word from the Lord today, and uh, frankly, I don't think the devil's going to like what I have to say today. And so we want to pray. We want to pray that the Holy Spirit of God would just guard our hearts and um, keep our minds centered upon the Lord. And, and, and guard us from the evil one, frankly. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. And we're glad that we can come and sit in your presence before an inerrant, infallible, inspired, eternal word from you, Father. And we do just pray that, Father, you would guard our hearts and our minds and just keep us today as you promised in Jude. We know that, Father, your word will never return void, that it would accomplish that which you set it out to accomplish, and that, Father, you will minister and strengthen these warriors as you send us into the battle, Father. Lord, I love you, and in advance, I give you praise for what you're going to accomplish through your word in our hearts and in our lives. It's in Jesus' strong and mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the year 2003 was a great year for the NBA draft. Three phenomenal rookies took center stage. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, and Dwayne Wade, all of, since, all of which have become, over the last dozen years, perennial all-stars. Well, the year 1945 was a great year as well, not for rookie basketball players, but for rookie preachers. In 1945, you had three young men that were taking the world by storm. Uh, one of them I'm sure you've heard of, his name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham in 1945 was 27 years of age. He was preaching for uh, an organization called Youth for Christ and already preaching to crowds that were swelling over 30,000 in number. And so God was greatly using the young Billy Graham, but he wasn't alone. Billy Graham had a friend by the name of Chuck Templeton, and uh, Chuck, Temple, Chuck Templeton was also in his mid-20s in 1945 and was also drawing large crowds and being greatly used of God. In fact, a seminary president said when he heard Chuck Templeton preach that he is, and I quote, the most gifted and talented young preacher in America today, Billy Graham and Chuck Templeton, Graham's good friend. But there was a third young man. Uh, his name was Bron Clifford, 
And um, if the other two young men were gifted to preach, Bron Clifford was literally called the Babe Ruth of evangelism. And the Lord was greatly using Bron Clifford. In 1945, he was only 25 years of age, and it was said of Bron Clifford that he, quote, touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other preacher his age in American history, end quote. Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton, and Braun Clifford. 1945 was the golden age for young ministers being greatly used of God. Now, you're familiar with Billy Graham. There's no doubt about it. And a few of you have heard of Chuck Templeton and know the story of Chuck Templeton. But why is it uh, we're all familiar with Billy Graham very few of us know who Chuck Templeton is, and almost none of us have ever heard of Braun Clifford. Well, the reason that you're not familiar with Templeton and Clifford is because the devil destroyed their ministries. The devil had his way with these men. They made shipwreck of their faith. And um, we can look at the errors that those two men made, and we can analyze it from a uh, ministerial and sociological point of view in the sense of saying, well, what errors did they make and where did they deviate for Templeton? It was liberal theology and this and that. But at the end of the day, let's just remember we are in a war. And by virtue of your faith in Christ, by virtue of the fact that you have surrendered yourself to ministry, you need to understand that you are in a war. There is a real devil. And he has his crosshairs on you. And C.S. Lewis was sitting in church one day and listening to a boring preacher. <laughs> and his mind began to uh, wonder. And he decided while he was listening to that boring preacher that he would write the screw tape letters. And uh, in the screw tape letters, um, he says there are two extremes when it comes to our understanding of Satan. First of all, we can ignore him. On one hand, we have, uh, like the secular humanist, we have um, uh, Christians operating totally in the natural realm, to totally in the, in the carnal realm, just totally ignoring that Satan exists. And by the way, Satan delights in that when he's able to work behind the scenes unaware. On the other hand, uh, C.S. Lewis said, then you have the other person and the other extreme that has an unhealthy fascination with Satan. And, um, you know, that would be a person that's an, a literal Satanist or somebody that worships him. But not only that, that would be a Christian that is just totally fascinated by Satan. And he finds Satan everywhere. In fact, it seems that he talks more of Satan than he does the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the guy that has an unhealthy um, fascination with Satan. He finds Satan behind every single tree, as it were. If there's a common cold, he's rebuking the devil and whatnot. And, and both of those are extremes. At the end of the day, we need to have a grounded biblical understanding of Satan and the war that he has waged on each and every one of us. The fact is, Satan does exist, and he is behind every single trouble in our ministries today. 
Every single trouble, a lot of times we want to battle against flesh and blood. We think it's this or we think it's that. But at the end of the day, Satan indeed is behind it. And there's no doubt about it that he is reaping havoc in our churches today, much like he did in the first century. Uh, when you look at the churches in the apocalypse, when you look at Ephesus, when you look at Smyrna, when you look at Pergamum, when you look at Thyatira, uh, when you look at Sardis, when you look at uh, Philadelphia, when you look at Laodicea, when you look at those seven churches, they were a mess. And five out of seven of them were severely rebuked. And the two that weren't rebuked were suffering and small and having tremendous, tremendous uh, problems. They were suffering internally and externally, and Satan was behind it all, trying to squelch and stop their witness in the first century. And so at the heart of these struggles was Satan. He was behind it all. And again, make no mistake about it, this isn't something that was just going on in the first century. He has you in his crosshairs. He wants to stop you. He wants to destroy you. At a minimum, he wants to rob you of your testimony and put you in stalemate for the kingdom of God. This is a real, real war and struggle that you and I are um, in today. Uh, make no mistake about it. In five to seven years, 25% of you will no longer be in ministry. In 10 to 12 years, 50% of you will no longer be in ministry. If you are, by the grace of God, able to stand and actually retire as a minister, only one in 10 of you will still be standing. Now, if you don't think that there's a supernatural work behind that, then you are the proverbial ostrich that has your head in the sand. I know that we sit in a nice auditorium today and padded chairs and, 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 and a warm building and we have on our nice suits and we have uh, modern day automobiles and we're educated. But at the end of the day, there is a real war that is taking place. There is a real devil. And if he has his way, if you don't, as we heard yesterday, stay connected to the vine, he will destroy you. Uh, we are told the reason in chapter 12 that this war has taken place and also given uh, the weapon that you and I need to overcome. And that's so much of why I like chapter 12 of the apocalypse. It very well could be uh, my favorite chapter. In verse 1, uh, we are introduced to a woman. I want you to look at it with me there. John writes, and he says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, verse 1, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And verse 2 says, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. What a vivid, vivid picture we see here in Revelation chapter 12. First, we're introduced to this woman. She is travailing, about to give birth and the question that you and I have as we approach this text is just who is this woman who is she uh, I'm not going to say with my colleague and boss Dr. David Allen that there are a gallimaufry of guesses as to who this woman is um, there are really only three positions when you look at church history first of all our Roman Catholic friends tell us that this woman is Mary this is Mary 
And so if you read a little bit on, you're going to find out that this child that this woman brings forth is the Messiah. And so they say this is a reference to Mother Mary. The only problem with that interpretation is, is you never see Mary described in the terms found there in verse 1. She is a lowly handmaiden that was graced by God, no doubt. And the Bible also goes on to say a little bit later in the chapter that um, she has um, other children, if you will, at the end of the chapter there, the rest of her children. And so there are real problems with the Mary uh, interpretation uh, of, uh, of the woman here. Number two, you have the woman sometimes described as the church or the redeemed people of God. Again, there's a problem with that. Uh, not only do you have um, other children mentioned later, uh, but you also never see the church described like this woman is described in verse 1. And um, also, it is Jesus who births the church, not the other way around. And so this isn't Mary. This isn't the church. There's no doubt that this is a reference to Israel. Uh, let, let me give you a hermeneutical um, uh, nugget here in terms of just understanding the apocalypse. Uh, if you have questions about what a particular passage means, go to the Old Testament. There are more references in the apocalypse to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book, even the book of Hebrews. And so when we look in verse 1 and we see this descriptive language of this woman, there's no doubt that this um, is a reference to Joseph and his dream found back in the book of Genesis. There's no doubt that this woman here is not Mary. It is not the church, the redeemed of God. It is Israel. She is the one that brings forth the Messiah. She is the one that uh, God uses. She is the one that Satan has attacked and hated. And uh, she is the one that is uh, travailing here in verse 1 and verse 2. Well, then in verse 3, we see the dragon. Look at it there. It says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, and I love this, a great red dragon. He's red because he's a murderer. Uh, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. This speaks of his power. This speaks of his authority. Verse 4, and his, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon, notice his position. He stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. What vivid language we have here. We have a woman here, Israel, that's um, travailing in birth. On the other hand, you've got this dragon, this big red dragon that's waiting for the Messiah to come forth so he can gobble up and devour her child. There's no doubt that this child that is about to be born is the Messiah. Look down there at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, and I love that. As much as the devil would like to thwart and stop the sovereign plan of God in bringing forth our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he cannot do it. It says, and she, little Israel, gave birth to a son. 
was this son? Well, he was a male child. Notice this, who is to rule all the nations. Literally in the Greek, he's to shepherd the nations um, with a rod of iron. By the way, that again, that reference goes back to Psalm chapter 2. You remember when uh, the nations gather against the Lord and his anointed, the Messiah, <laughs> and they try to stop um, God from installing his son, his Messiah, his Mashiach upon his throne. And they gather together to stop it. And what does God do? He laughs. It's like me challenging LeBron James to a game of one-on-one. -on -one. It's ridiculous. You can't stop the sovereign plan of Almighty God. And so she gives birth. And uh, this child is indeed going to be installed whether the devil likes it or not. And so he, according to verse 5, is caught up to God and to his throne. You see, the, stop, the, the child couldn't be stopped either. God... Uh, sovereignly and providentially guards his son and his son does exactly what God intended for his son to do and so in verse 6 the woman flees she fled into the wilderness where the Bible says there look at it she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1260 days for three and a half years she is said to have fled into the wilderness where God nourished her and preserved her. At the end of the day, what a vivid, vivid picture you have here, a woman that gives birth to the Messiah, the dragon cannot touch and harm the Messiah and stop him from his work. The Messiah is called up. And so the dragon turns his attention on the woman. Ladies and gentlemen, long before Herod, Long before Herod and that divine drama that took place in Matthew's gospel came to pass, Satan's goal was to, to, to devour this seed. Now, all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, that proto-evangelium, that first gospel promise, when God promised that the seed would come forth and that that seed would crush Satan's head. And... Um, and Satan would bruise his heel. All the way back then, the seed was promised. And all through the unfolding of biblical prophecy, and all through the Old Testament, we see Satan as a dragon trying to stop the ultimate plan of God, trying to stop the Messiah from coming forth, trying to gobble up that seed. I could give you numerous examples, but let me give you one, the book of Esther. Why do we have the book of Esther? The name of God is not even mentioned in that book. But you have Esther on one hand, the queen, and you have wicked Haman on the other. You want to know who's behind wicked Haman? It's Satan. And what is happening in the book of Esther? Satan is trying to destroy the Jewish people. He's trying to stop the seed from coming forth. He's trying to gobble up that seed before God can bring forth our Savior and our Lord. And so even though God is not mentioned, and even though Satan is not mentioned, there is a divine drama, a war taking place in the book of Esther. And we find this throughout all of the Bible. In fact, this war began long, began long before Barashit, Bara Elohim. Long before Genesis 1-1, one, one, 
Satan had already rebelled against God. He wanted to go up. And by the way, there's a contrast there. Jesus was willing to go down. And so this war has been happening for years and years and years. In fact, pre-creation, this war has been taking place. And so we see here this woman fleeing into the wilderness because the dragon wants to destroy her. Look down there at verse 13. And look at the dragon turn his attention upon the woman because he can't stop the Messiah. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, I love that. In fact, three different times the Bible says Satan was thrown down. Satan was thrown down. Satan was thrown down. It says, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. What does he do? He turns his attention on Israel, no doubt in the latter days. You see, Satan hates Israel. He hates her. He has hated her, and are you ready for this? He will continue to hate her. You want to know why? Because by virtue of the fact that she was chosen by God and she is God's bride, if you will, God's people, Satan hates her. And so he turns his attention upon her. And even though Satan hates Israel, and by the way, the very fact that Israel exists speaks of God's ability to preserve his people. It's a miracle of God that Israel, literally modern-day Israel, still exists. Uh, she is surrounded right now by literally millions of, men, millions of enemies, um, some of which have a desire to literally push her into the sea. And yet she still stands. Uh, by the way, have you ever met a Hittite? Have you ever met a Jebusite? You want to know why uh, you have never met one of these ancient peoples that we read about in the Bible? Because they're gone. But you can meet a Jew. You can meet someone that is an ancient Israelite. And the, the, the point is, is that God has preserved his people throughout history. And God will continue to preserve her even during the tribulation period in the future. God will preserve Israel, and I love this, Satan, even though he hates us as well, God will preserve his church. Uh, look down at verse 17. There's no doubt that he will turn his attention upon uh, the church. It says, so the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went off to make war with the rest of her children. Who is the rest of Israel's children? It's the redeemed people of God. It's the church. And we know this because he, he gives the description here in verse 17, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan hates us because we are his children, God's children. Satan wants to destroy us because we have united ourselves by faith to God and even more so because you and I have been called to be ambassadors for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are in a war. But here's the beautiful thing. Even as God has protected Israel and will continue to protect Israel, God will protect us as well. See, promises are made to Israel in the Old Testament. 
some of those promises are still um, unfulfilled until the Messiah literally comes and sets up his kingdom. Therefore, if Satan can stop and destroy Israel, he can somehow thwart God's work on earth and besmirch the name of God. We have united ourselves by faith to Jesus Christ. Satan wants to stop us. And if he can stop us, Satan uh, will uh, detract glory from God for not, not having the ability to protect his people. And so we are a protected people, even as Israel was airlifted, if you will. Um, the Bible talks about how she was um, preserved. Look down there at verse 14. It says, uh, but the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished again for three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the water which the dragon poured forth out of his mouth. You see, God preserved the woman and God will preserve us. That's the message that these original hearers needed to hear as they read Revelation chapter 12. They were looking around and Domitian was on the throne. Uh, they were dwelling where Satan's seat was according to uh, what Jesus said to Pergamum. They were being martyred. The darkness was closing in on them, and it looked like God might be losing. But God opens up Revelation chapter 12, and he lets them know that I uh, will continue to preserve Israel, and I will continue to preserve my people from Satan no matter how much he um, arms himself against the work that God has called you to, I will keep you, is what God is saying. And we look around in our world, and uh, it's not just the world that is a mess. I don't know about you, but I was glued to my television set Friday night when I saw the attacks there in Paris, uh, bringing back memories of what happened in our country on 9-11, and um, what happened in my home state, uh, the Mar Mara building bombing um, years before that, and I, I just, we just, we know that our world is a mess. The Middle East is, the Middle East is a mess. Economically, things are a mess. Then I, I look at the church and I think, well, maybe I can find some solace there. And I look at the statistics on, on, on the church and we're a mess. And it can become discouraging. I see the statistics on several thousand preachers throwing in the towel every single year and giving up ministry. And it just seems like Satan is winning. It just seems like sometimes that there is no hope. But then I open up Revelation chapter 12 and God reminds me that he preserves his people. There was a um, native tribe that had a rite of passage for their young men when their young men were becoming, um, literally becoming men, their boys were becoming men. The father would take the 12 or 13 year old boy out with the other men in the tribe. And he would take his son out, they would go out to the woods and he would hand his son just a knife. He would draw a, a, a barrier around his son that was about 
20 yards in diameter. And he would say, now, son, you are to stay in this circle. No matter what, don't leave the circle. And as night would begin to fall, uh, that boy would watch his father and the other men retreat into the darkness and go back to camp. His father would tell him, well, I'll be back in the morning to get you. And that boy would stand in the middle of that circle with that knife all night long. And of course, when the night would fall, uh, that boy would begin to hear um, the um, lions and the tigers and bears and all of the nocturnal animals out there that were rustling around out there. And he would begin to shake in fear, but he would stay in that circle. He wanted to prove that he was a man. Finally, after a number of hours of being in, 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 in total fear, the young man would finally collapse in exhaustion. And the next morning, as the sun begin to peek her head over the eastern horizon and as um, the dawn began to, to, um, to come forth and reveal what was around the young boy. And as he was opening up his eyes, his sleepy eyes, he would see the silhouette of his father standing right outside that circle with his bow drawn. There are times when um, it seems like we're all alone. There are times it seems like the weapons that God has given us are not enough, and, and, and darkness is falling, and it seems to be increasing, and it seems like we're going to be devoured. But then God pulls back the curtain, and he reveals that, you know what? He's always standing by us. He's always watching over us, and he's always in sovereign control. Luther was right when he said, even Satan is God's Satan. And God is running things. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And you and I can rest assured that no matter how bad things get, our sovereign God is still running the show. There is a kingdom of God coming, and it's coming to a place near you. God the Father is the producer. God the Holy Spirit's the director. And Jesus is the superstar. And no matter what Satan does to stop us, to thwart us, we will get the victory in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God has always preserved his people, and he will preserve his church. And so that's why the war exists. But we're also given the weapon that you and I have to overcome and to win in this chapter. Did you notice that when the worship begins in verse 10, the um, content, listen to this, Dr. Day, the content of the theology in this song. <laughs> verse, uh, verse 10, you see that the, the, the high definition zoom now pans up to heaven. And it says in verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Here's the, here's the loud voice. These are probably the martyrs from chapter 6. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him. Wow. They overcame him how? Because of the blood of the Lamb 
and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it is, uh, my ministry friends. We see the worship in heaven, and we see the weapon that has been given to us that we might overcome and defeat Satan, who three times in this text has been thrown down. He's been thrown down. He's been thrown down, and yet he still tries to accuse. Verse 10, he is the accuser of the brethren. And we find that in the book of Zechariah chapter 3, when the priest is there and his dirty garments and Satan is there as the accuser to accuse him. Satan has access to God's throne right now. Did you know that? Read the book of Job. Satan can approach the very throne of God. And what does he do when he approaches the throne of God? He accuses us. And by the way, me standing in my own righteousness and, sp and standing in my own humanity and standing in my own power and standing in my own failures, I have no defense against the devil. You don't either. I mean, there I am. I'm sitting there, and Satan, the prosecuting attorney, attorney approaches God's bench, and he says to God, did you see what Dr. Charette did? Not before he was saved, did you see what he did last night? The accuser of the brethren not only accuses me to God, but he accuses God to me, and he, then he comes down and he whispers in my ear, you're not worthy. You're a failure. You're full of pride and envy and strife, and he'll bring back my failures and, and, and the areas in which I'm weak. And he will accuse me. What's he trying to do? Stalemate me, stop me, condemn me, bring shame in my life. And so many ministers have buckled under that condemnation. But I'm so thankful that even though the accuser of the brethren accuses me, I have an advocate. You have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John chapter 2, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not just for our sins, the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, our advocate. I stand there condemned. Satan accuses me, and I have a defending attorney. His name is Jesus. And this is what I love about my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He can approach the very throne of God. And by the way, my lawyer is related to the judge. <laughs> and all Jesus has to do is to lift up his nail-scarred hand towards his Father. And the Father looks through the hole in his hand, and he sees me, and no longer am I standing in my filthy, condemned garments. No, sir, I'm standing in the very righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we sing in heaven and we'll sing in heaven about the blood of the Lamb. Oh, let's make the liberals mad this morning. I mean, it, it is true. The liberals do so many things. They humanize Jesus. They socialize the gospel. They de demythologize the miracles. And above all, they minimize the blood. But I tell you one thing, ladies and gentlemen, we stand in the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We overcome him. And that word there is nikao. It's from which we derive our word Nike. We are overcomers because of the blood of the Arneon, the Lamb.
if we have no blood, if we have no sacrifice, we have no victory. Our victory is founded in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Let Satan accuse us all he wants. We are preserved by the very blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stand in it. Bask in it. Glory in it. Jesus Christ, our righteousness, but not only the blood, but also, also our bold confession. How do we overcome him? They sang it, not only by the blood of the lamb, but also by the word of their testimony. We just, we shackle ourselves to the word of God. We shackle ourselves to the confession that we are standing in Jesus Christ, and no matter what comes against me, I am not going to move. The book, stand on it. <laughs> the word of God. The blood, stand on it. The thing that cleanses us and, and, and allows us to remember there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Jesus Christ and also the blessed hope. Because they love not their lives even unto death. That's what it is all about. See, if Satan hits me with the sharpest arrow in his quiver, God will just trump death by resurrection. I mean, we cannot lose. On December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And um, the Japanese made three critical mistakes. First of all, they bombed on a Sunday. Most of our boys were not on the ships. Uh, they were on the shore. By the way, can I say this? Many of them were in church in that generation. They bombed while we, our, our boys were on the shore. Number two, they spared the dry docks. Uh, if um, they had destroyed the, the docks, then those ships that we literally raised would have had to be, they would have had to have been towed all the way back to the United States. It would have taken months to repair some of those ships. We, we, we took them right to the dry docks and got them fixed immediately. They, um, they dropped the bombs on a Sunday and they spared the dry docks. Number three, um, the fuel tanks were all, also spared. They were right over the hill there. The Japanese made a critical, critical, three critical, critical errors. And I want you to know that Satan has made a critical error in the fact that he and all of his hubris thought that he could stop Jesus Christ from uh, his plan of redemption. And even though Satan thought that by nailing Jesus Christ to a cross, that would be the very thing that would stop the, and thwart the very plan of God, he made a critical error. The very death of Christ is the very thing that gives us our victory. And when Jesus looks the weakest, that's where you and I derive and find our strength. And by the way, Satan did not bank on day three. <laughs> because it was on an early Sunday morning that God the Father raised his son from the dead. Uh, you say, Vern, was it God the Father or was it God the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? Well, theologically, um, there's a sense in which God the Father raised him. There's a sense in which God the Holy Spirit raised him. But are you ready for this? There's also a sense, John chapter 10, that Jesus just got up. 
And in that resurrected moment, Jesus Christ destroyed death, hell, and the grave. And you and I have found our victory in Jesus Christ. There's a war. But we've got the victory through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lean on it. Marry yourself to it. Never depart from it. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious chapter you've given us. So many things yet to happen in the future. So many proleptic events that we apply to our lives, even as that early church applied it to their lives. I pray for ultimate protection and strength. I pray that, Father, that you would give us divine insight into this war and battle so that we would not battle against flesh and blood, but, Father, we would stand, stand spiritually, having done all, standing against the wiles of the devil. Father, we're so glad that you've given us the victory. Strengthen your church. Edify these leaders, these ministers, Father, even some of these young ladies, Father, that will be on the mission field in a few short years. Father, would you just guard their hearts? Keep them. We pray for grace in this dark world. I love you, and I thank you that no matter how bad things look, We've got your son, the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.